This program is brought to you by Emory University. My wife looked at this slide and says that it looks as if I died in 1882. <laughs> <laughs> but I am recovering from a recent major operation, so if anything I say is stupid, it's the anesthetic. <laughs> um, Bertram Russell once wrote, whenever you happen to take your children to the zoo, you may observe in the eyes of the apes a strange, strange sadness. One can almost imagine that they feel they ought to become men, but cannot discover the secret of how to do it. Now, you're not going to discover the secret from me, but I think it's important for us to reflect that of all the questions that are open to science, such as our place in the universe, the nature of life, perhaps the most important question for science is our place in nature and, as Darwin said, the nature of our descent. Now, of course, we didn't evolve from chimps. <laughs> there was a common ancestor six million years ago, and uh, lots of anthropologists think this is a hominid. I, I, I think it probably isn't. Um, it was found in Chad, and, and that's wrong. So um, anyway, there is a common ancestor. And of course, we developed from the common ancestor. Well, let's put it another way. How would you turn a chimp embryo into a person? Well, of course, that didn't happen either. It was an ancestral embryo. But we don't have the ancestral embryo, so forgive me. How can you turn a chimp embryo into a person? Well, I'm going to suggest three things, none of them revolutionary. A prolongation and slowing of development, prior adaptations, and consequences that are radical. Okay, so as we know, the human brain is very big. There's a human brain, there's a chimp brain. And if you want to develop a, a big brain, just grow it for a long time. There's a very nice relation between the size of the brain, as plotted there, log brain size, and the length of gestation. And we fit that, though you will notice we're actually to the left of the line, and I do think that some of the variation around this line is indeed significant. That means that it's no good using a line like this. What we've got to get hold of is data on chimp development and data on human development, and that exists. So here from Rice, plotting the growth of the human brain up to 67 weeks and the chimp brain. And the interesting thing is that all you need to do is a very simple transform, and they fit. That is, you simply align the endpoints. There is no development. It's a uniform transform of the whole growth curve. Now, something's odd, though, because if you plot, as here, the 
hemisphere volume against body weight, then as you can see, the human brains, and I get this from Jim Rilling, is bigger than you expect for an ape of that body size, about three or four times as big as you expect. So how's that come about? And the answer is what really happened is that there is a slowing of the development of the human body up to puberty compared with chimps. Now, that's important, and we'll use it later because it tells us the following. If you plot two body parts against each other, part A, part B, then differences in intercept suggest a change in either the length or rate of development of either A or B, or both of them. Whereas, if you're on the same intercept, that suggests that it's a continuation of relative developmental trends of A and B. We'll come back to that. Now, what about radical consequences of a big brain? Well, let's try to estimate what it means to have a brain our size. Here what I've done is plotted the size of the brain in relation to part of the brainstem, which scales very much with body weight. And I've compared it with data for chimp, macaque, bush baby, and a non-primate, a little shrew. And you'll notice that the difference between the human and the chimp is, if anything, bigger than the difference between the chimp and the shrew. And yet nobody would think that a chimpanzee is just a big shrew. <laughs> now, I use this to say, don't neglect brain size. But of course I know that the chimp brain is not just a big shrew brain. It's got other changes, and we'll consider those as well. But don't neglect the fact that the difference as seen this way between the human brain and the chimp brain is, if anything, bigger than that between a chimpanzee and a shrew. Now, there's a second consequence which I like. And I plotted some time ago um, the following. So this is showing you the increase in the human brain um, from, from uh, uh, during development, including in green the times at which different primates are born, other primates. And if you work out what proportion of adult brain size the brain is in a chimp at birth or a macaque monkey at birth, it's roughly 50%. That means for us, roughly 700 grams. And we don't reach that till 32 weeks after birth. But of course, no woman could give birth to such a big brain. So there's a radical consequence, which is that humans are born early. Our brain is only, in fact, 25% or so of its adult size when we're born, simply because it's got to get through the birth canal. And that means that the young child, unlike a young chimp, is totally helpless and dependent on the mother. And I like the following. That means that 
There are limits to such a mother going out gathering food, and it suggests an economy in which you have at least a temporary home base in the way that, say, dogs do, and which some go out and come back and provision those that stay. And that is the economy of a beehive, and bees communicate, having gone out to find food, the direction in which food is to be found, whereas, of course, what we do is we point. Now, this is a just-so story, but I like it. <laughs> because what you need is a selection pressure to communicate. Where did that selection pressure come from? Now, I've no idea, but this is one just-so story. Okay, so the brain's big. But, as Jim said, is it just a ballooned-up version? No. Let's look at prefrontal cortex. Now, if you measure that, as Brodman did, on the basis of the look of the cell layers, the cytoarchitecture, it's 28% of the neocortical size in the human brain and only 17% in a chimp brain. Now, recently, Semendefery claimed otherwise, but she was just measuring an anterior strip from the precentral sulcus. And that includes that purple area, which cytoarchitectonically is what's called disgranular. It's not granular. The fourth layer is not continuous in the way that it is in prefrontal cortex. Therefore, I think that Brodman's data are probably correct. Now, if you look at the development of different areas of the brain in people, you find the following. With age, the area that grows most proportionately is, as shown in red, the prefrontal cortex. And if you take people from the age of 12 to 20, as Toro and Co. did, then the area that gets bigger and more folded, which brings back what Jim said, the bigger the brain, is the prefrontal cortex. Now, we don't have developments of the chimp prefrontal cortex. We don't have the data. So we have to go back to plots like this. And you remember I said that if humans here differ in the intercept, it suggests that there's been some change in the relative rates or development. But you'll notice that if you plot Brodman's data like this, the chimp also doesn't lie on the uh, uh, line. Whereas if you were to put the line through the chimp, but there's only one chimp here, then the human wouldn't deviate much. Now, of course, that's a cheat. So what we now need is data for apes. And luckily, we've got it from Semendefery for the frontal pole, which in Brodman's system is area 10. And she measured that in apes. And this is her plot on a log-log plot. And as you can see, area 10 in the human brain is just as you would expect for an ape with a brain 
our sons. Okay, so what are the consequences of that? Well, first of all, the size of something really does matter. If you look at the body map in the brain, in the sensory area or the motor area, as you know, the size of the representation is not related to the size of the part of the body, it's related to the importance, the complexity of working that part. So if we take the temporal lobe, which Jim told us was expanded, let's take the eye. Well, the human eye is a bit bigger than a chimp eye, and, and I'm sure Todd will know what the answer is, but it's, it's not desperately much bigger. So the information going through the human eye and the chimp eye is not vastly different. But the temporal lobe, the middle and inferior temporal lobe in the human brain, which analyze that, are four times as big as in the chimp brain. In other words, there's a much more complex analysis going on of that information. What about the frontal lobe? Well, the frontal lobe receives information from all the senses. It's the top of the sensory hierarchy. So if the frontal lobe is very big, absolutely, then again, it suggests a more sophisticated analysis. But there's another radical consequence. Let's look at the pyramidal cells in the third and fifth layer in prefrontal cortex, as Elston does, and they have spines on them, and those spines, as shown on the right, receive some, though not all, of the terminations onto the cell. Now, Elston has measured the number of spines on pyramidal cells in prefrontal cortex, and there are many more spine, uh, many more connections onto the spines uh, uh, many, sorry, many more spines on the pyramidal cells in prefrontal cortex there are than there are in other areas of the brain. But if you look at the human prefrontal cortex, there are 70% more spines per pyramidal cell than there are in a macaque. Now, unfortunately, we don't have those data for a chimp. But if you plot the number of spines you would expect given the cortex that we have, the size, then the human is as you expect. Now, at that point, you're probably getting worried. On the one hand, I'm saying it really matters, and then I'm saying, but it's just what you would expect for a brain that size. Okay. People have supposed wrongly that if spots fit a line, that means that that suggests simply the same thing expressed at a bigger size. And that's not necessarily the case. So let's take the height of different elks, as you call them here, or deers as we call them in England, and the, uh, the size of their um, what do you call it? It's, it's the anaesthetic. <laughs> Gould showed that the Irish elk, I'll show you a picture in a moment, has 
an antler which is no bigger than you expect when you plot for the size of the animal. Now, on the right are the antlers of the Irish elk. They were four meters long. There is no way that the antlers of the Irish elk are of the same power, are the same. But you may say the slope of that line is more than one, and indeed it is. And Gould was interested because he thought when you develop very big things is often because there are strong selective pressures. And in this case, he thought the selective pressures involve sexual selection. So let's look at prefrontal cortex. The slope, whether plotted for Brodmann's data on the left or on the right for Semendeferi's data, is more than one. In other words, if you plot the data for monkeys and apes, the bigger the brain, the bigger the proportion of prefrontal cortex. Now, that does not necessarily mean that it's the same processing power. It may well be that selective processes are what you're looking at here, just as you were in the Irish elk. Okay, that's to do with size. Now, are the differences that the chimp is going to have to develop which are not to do with size. So let's look in the language areas in the left hemisphere that Jim talked about, Wernicke's area, and in particular in a sub-area labelled TPT. If you look at that in the left and the right hemisphere, you'll see that the cells are lined up in columns, and you can measure the spacing between those columns, and that was done by Brooks-Hoyvden, and what you'll notice is that in people, but not in chimps and not in macaque monkeys, the width of the columns is wider on the left than the right. Um, now, you might say yes, but um, perhaps that's because uh, the uh, left Wernicke's area is bigger than the right. But I don't think that's correct. And the reason I don't think it is that at Yerkes, Hopkins has suggested, using MRI scans, that chimps also have uh, a bigger uh, part of the temporal lobe within TPT on the left than the right. So I think this is a difference which is not to be explained simply in terms of the size of the area. Okay, so what explains that? How do you develop wider columns? Well, Compare two areas of the brain, two visual areas, shown here by the same authors, the primary visual cortex, area 17, and the neighboring area, 18. The width between columns is wider in microns in primary visual cortex than in area 18, and it's a function of the size of the pyramidal cells. So what we're talking about here is the development of the size of pyramidal cells. So what we need to know is what influences how big a pyramidal cell gets. Now, we don't know the answer to that. Two possibilities. We could look in neonates and see whether they're bigger on the left than the right. Well, that's not been done, but we do know that if you look at the cytoarchitecture, the cell density, in Broca's area 44 and 
Broca's area 45 in human uh, newborns, then uh, there's a difference between the left and the right. But we also know from Amundsen that with postnatal development and thus experience, that difference gets greater. So we have two possibilities here. One, uh, a difference which uh, is due to the rates uh, which are determined by uh, gene expression, by controlling genes. And secondly, the possibility that experience, namely speaking itself, has an effect. That that could be true, we know from data from Elston's lab, because they brought up rats, I think they were rats and not mice, forgive me for not remembering, um, either in enriched environments or impoverished environments, and the size of the pyramidal cells is bigger in the enriched black than in the impoverished animals, and the number of spines is very much greater in the animals brought up in the richer environment. So whatever account we're going to give of this difference in column width is probably going to take into account both some genetic programming, as you might say, of the length of time for which pyramidal cells develop and the possibility, anyway, uh, that um, there's an interaction uh, with use. Okay, so prolongation and slowing of development. What about prior adaptations of which speech is the most obvious case? Now, chimps do not imitate sounds. Kathy uh, Hayes and her husband brought up a chimp and all it ever learned to say was a very bad case of, I think there were four words that they claimed. But there are lots of birds which learn sequences of song, of which swamp sparrows are one. So here, the um, uh, swamp sparrows um, are given tutors, and uh, what happens is that the um, uh, uh, bird that hears the tutor develops the sequence of song that it hears when it's young. Now, if you record in the basal ganglia, in area X, as Prada did, of swamp sparrows, when they're hearing song, you'll find, let's say, a cell here which fires when it hears song A, but not song B. And, interestingly, the same cell fires when the same bird sings song A, but not when it sings song B. And these, you'll know, have been described in the premotor <coughs> cortex and parietal cortex of monkeys and have been called mirror neurons. Now, as I say, chimps don't imitate sounds. Um, so how on earth could our brain in evolution have developed the ability to imitate sounds, have developed mirror neurons for sound. Well, chimps, but only in captivity, do point. And it seems a distinct possibility that what happened in the evolution of communication was first via pointing and then via other manual gesture. Let me show you for macaques 
if you use fMRI, functional magnetic brain imaging, as Guillaume's group did, and a macaque sees somebody pick something up, then there, are, there is activity in Broca's area 44, as shown in the left red bar, when it sees the action, but not when it sees scrambled pictures. And what we need now is for recordings to be taken in this area to see if there are mirror neurons in this area. Um, what about people? Well, when you either observe hand movements or mouth movements, there's activity in Broca's area, as shown by Buccino. When you, if you're a signer, see and understand signs, this is the sign for sheep, there's activity in an area near Broca's area. And if in the scanner you're taught that sound A goes with gesture X, then in the learning there's activity in Broca's area. So there seems to be some association in this area between hands, hand movements, and oral movements. Now this is consistent with, but in no sense proves, that what happened historically went via imitation of what was seen, namely hand movements, to imitation of what was heard. It's another just-so story. What about reflection on mental states? A member of the audience talked about that uh, in a question for the first speaker. Now, chimps, when shown themselves in mirrors, will take off paint that's been put on them that they can't see and can't feel. It was put on them when they were anaesthetized. And Gallup, who developed the test, said that it showed that chimps recognize themselves. Now, as Povinelli has said, we don't have to draw that conclusion. What does this prove? Well, what it proves is that the chimp can match what it does with what it sees. And we know from Alan Cowie in Oxford and Petra Sturrig, uh, I can tell people if they don't know later in questions, that macaque monkeys are visually aware. And there is, I think, no reason not to suppose Similarly, that chimps are not proprioceptively aware. It seems to me that this demonstration requires the chimp to be aware of what it's doing proprioceptively and to be able to match that to what it's aware of seeing. I think that's the limit of what it does. So I'm going to argue that chimps are probably aware of what they're doing. Now, we can ask people if you're aware, Libet developed a test, and Hakuan Lau and I used it. So you press your finger whenever you want, and when you're aware that you're moving it, you remember where a circle on a clock face was. So this dot is going around the clock face very fast, and you simply remember where it was on the clock face when you became aware of your action. And then four to ten seconds later, you show 
where it was on the clock face to show when you were aware of your movement. Now, we've done that in the scanner, and if you look at when you're aware of a movement, you get more activity in a singular motor area on the medial surface when you are attending, you're timing the movement, than when you're not. But I could also ask you when you're aware of intending the movement. And Libet did that, and we did that in the scanner too. So what you're now doing is reporting not when you're aware of the movement, I think a chimp's aware of that, but of your intention to move. I've no idea if a chimp is aware of that. And now we find activity in the pre-supplementary motor cortex, which is greater in yellow on the right when you're aware or when you're attending than when you're not. But we can also get subjects, as in recent experiments by Sarah Bengston and myself, to reflect on their own performance. And we can get them to rate their own performance. How well are they doing? And you get activity in one of the parts of what Jim showed as the default system in the parasingular cortex. You get activity there in Oxner's data also when you think about whether a trait applies to you or to somebody else. And so the argument would be that because you and I can be aware of our intentions, that's why we can think about the intentions of others. And many, including Julie Grez and myself, have looked at what happens when people um, try to decide whether somebody is deceiving them or not. Again, mentioned by a member of the audience. So here we had films of somebody picking up a box and in some cases, the person was trying to deceive you about the weight of the box, and in others, they were not. And the question you had to say was, is the person trying to deceive you? And if you thought they were trying to deceive you, you found activity exactly in the same area of the parasingulate cortex. So to sum that up, if, as I think a chimp almost certainly is, you're aware of your movement, you find activity here, your intention here, and if you reflect on your intentions or your performance or the intentions of another, there's activity further forwards in an area which is 32. And I hope that Emery will investigate, and it hasn't yet been done, whether there are any important differences in the architecture of this particular part of area 32. A macaque monkey does not have it. It has a ventral area 32. Um, it's possible there are no differences, but I think it's a very important place to be looking. And I think if a chimp wants to know how to become uh, a person, they should have a think about area 32. <laughs> Finally, and quickly, radical consequences. Now, these are obvious, well rehearsed, and I'll go through them. We teach in a language. Okay, yes, so we teach in a language. Okay. So if you want to teach chimpanzee Sarah proportions 
as Gillan did in Premax Lab, you've got to present Sarah with, let's say, half a cup of water, and then she's got to pick the disc which is half cut, as opposed to the one that's only got a quarter out. And, and you, you can teach Sarah to do this. Now, okay, uh, the, there will be some who are not convinced by the data, but the claim is that Sarah can generalize to new cases. Yeah, but I don't teach children by showing them a half and getting them to pick a half and so on. You teach a child or a person what a sixteenth is by not by showing it a sixteenth, but by definition. A sixteenth is half of an eighth, or it's an eighth divided by two. And you teach what x is by, not by showing all the possible things that could be x, but by definition. So, yes, you can teach a chimp, there are no attested cases uh, in the wild of chimps teaching that are very convincing, but we teach, or can teach, not just by imitation, but by language. So, for example, if you set the test whether in a verbal form at the top or a pictorial form at the bottom, where you have to pick whether a palm tree or a fir tree goes with a pyramid, you can do it, even if you've never been to Egypt. And that, of course, and it's very obvious, is because we have language um, in which you can be told about pyramids, as well, of course, as being shown photographs of pyramids. And... Uh, here is activity in the human brain when you do that test, as shown by Kathy Price and Carl Friston, in uh, language areas. And we call that semantic knowledge, meaning it's knowledge that was gained through language. Well, next, to come to Matt Ridley's point, um, chimps do learn from each other. At Yerkes, a study was done, which um, I don't know if the person who did it is here. It was done in your lab. With, with Andy Whiten? Yeah. And um, so the question was, will chimps learn two different ways of dealing with something depending on what they're exposed to? And the answer is they do. But Andy Whiten pointed out in a review there is almost no, though France may uh, have counterexamples, almost no good example in the wild of a cumulative set of inventions by chimps. Now, as Matt pointed out, if you look in the history of hominids, we put up with a chopper for at least two million years, a hand axe, for millenniers. Now, 30,000 is quite wrong because you find um, these specialised toolkits earlier than that, and there will be people here who can tell me how early. Obviously, you know, the, 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 um, our, our direct ancestors have been pushed back in time. <coughs> now, Matt was suggesting that the critical thing is exchange. We, we can't deny that that's possible. Perhaps we shouldn't be looking just for one thing. 
he, on the basis purely of the Fox P2 gene, wanted to argue that Neanderthals had language. Perhaps they did, perhaps it wasn't as sophisticated. I simply don't think we can rule out, that's all, the possibility that one thing that was happening that favoured our own direct line as opposed to their competitors involved language, communication, and indeed that may be bound up in exchange. That, of course, is the traditional view. And, of course, now you and I don't have to invent calculus because Newton and Leibniz did it for us and we read the textbook. Now, the most controversial, those are not controversial, consequence is this. What does language do for our thought? Now, most of our thought happens without us being aware. I will not go into the evidence for that. But we can become aware of our thoughts, of the content of our thoughts, by hearing them with the phonological loop or the articulatory loop, and here also from Vigneault, Jim showed another picture from the meta-analysis, of the areas of the human brain on the left from different studies, each study being a dot, that are active when we hear ourselves remembering, thinking, and so on. So what's the advantage of being able to hear yourself? Well, what about planning? What about, Russell said that a chimpanzee can't think about what it wants for breakfast tomorrow. Well, it could imagine cornflakes or a Weetabix packet. I mean, we don't know if chimps have visual imagery or not, but it's not impossible that they do. So they could do that. But, but uh, you know, if a chimp wants to think about planning a battle, uh, it's difficult to do it in visual imagery. Take this. This is a maze. And this is actually a maze that was used here in Yerkes. Um, in Japan, Mushiaki and Tanji recorded in the brains of macaque monkeys while they were waiting to complete the last three moves of the maze. And while they're waiting, during the preparatory period, you can find cells that are active for each of those moves. They're color-coded here. And as you can see, for move one, there's blue, for move two, there's green, and for move three, it's red. And you can find evidence of activity of independent cell subpopulations while the monkey, in this case monkey, is thinking about its next three moves. But of course, the maze is there. It can look at it. But you and I, can engage in mental trial and error. We can think about what happens tomorrow, the next day, and poor President uh, Obama is trying to think about what to do about Afghanistan. Well, this is what Darwin did when he was trying to decide whether to marry or not. And um, he did marry. Um, in particular because she could look after him in old age. Um, so a chimp could think about, in visual imagery, what it's like in 50 years' time and so on, but it's a bit difficult. Whereas it's very much easier if you can be aware 
and of the various possibilities, either silently in your head or here writing it down. So how can you turn a chimpanzee into a person? Those are the suggestions. Rather prosaic, but somehow or other, though it wasn't done that way, it was done. The question's no different from how you turn a shrew into a chimp. Um, we have been supposing that a chimp wants to turn into a person, and it's possible that a chimp would take one look at Afghanistan and decide to turn down the offer. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.